Welcome back to another edition of A Movie and an Argument with Alyssa and Swin. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg, the critic at Think Progress and a columnist for Slate in the Atlantic. And I'm Aswin Subsang. You can call me Swin. I'm the Interactive Writing Fellow at Mother Jones Magazine's DC Bureau and their movie guy. And a little bit of TV, too. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us again. Happy to be here as always. The The conference room at the Mother Jones DC Bureau feels increasingly like home. It It's so... Gloriously cluttered studio. I love this place <laughs> to death. But to get down to business, unfortunately, due to the uh, lovely third and final presidential debate, I didn't get to see the uh, Cloud Atlas screening, but you did. So you mean you were observing another dystopian wasteland while I was exactly. at Cloud Atlas watching? One way okay. darker and far less Tom Hanks involved. Yes, this is very Tom Hanks involved. Um. So Cloud Atlas uh, is the latest movie from the Wachowskis, formerly the Wachowski brothers now, Lana and Andy Wachowski and Tom Tyker. Um, and it's an adaptation of David Mitchell's 2004 novel Cloud Atlas, which is a series of sort of Russian doll nesting narratives um, that's meant to sort of explore kind of ideas of interconnectedness, reincarnation, etc. And mm -hmm. so the first story in Cloud Atlas is set in the 1840s, um, where a young lawyer is, after sort of a stint in what I think is the South Pacific, is headed back home to England, um, South Pacific or Africa. It's not entirely clear in the movie. Um, and then the final story is set in, you know, a sort of unnamed post-apocalypse. We know it's 106 years after the fall, where, and the fall is sort of a mysterious event, uh, where... Surviving humanity lives on an island that looks a lot like Hawaii and is visited periodically by Halle Berry in a spaceship. Um, and <laughs> I mean, it's, that should be on the movie poster, just Halle Berry in a spaceship. Yes. Um, and it's I mean, it's an interesting movie for a number of reasons. It's a very ambitious, but um, and I mean, extremely ambitious. We're talking two hours and 46 minutes, huge cast of giant stars. But for all of that, relatively cheap. I think it was under $100 million, which, you know, considering what we spend on the Avengers or Pirates of the Caribbean these days is, you know. Or one episode of Boardwalk Empire. Exactly. Um, is not hugely expensive. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, it's a movie that is going to be confusing to a lot of people. It's also been somewhat controversial uh, because the same sets of actors play different characters in different stories. So Halle Berry's character is the wife of a composer in 1930s England. She is an investigative journalist in San Francisco She in the 70s. She, um, you know, is this spaceship riding, you know, explorer in this futuristic time. Um, and the characters in different timelines... Um, are made up with very sophisticated makeup and prosthetics that essentially have them switch races. And this is something that is not comfortable for a lot of people. And I've been mm -hmm. sort of struggling to work out some of my feelings about it. Obviously, the traditions of both sort of blackface and yellowface makeup in American cinema and television are ignominious. Um, and I know there are some people for whom the Wachowskis and Tiger's intent not to use those tactics to sort of mock or shame or to put Asian and black actors out of jobs mm -hmm. simply isn't going to be enough. Um, and it's an area where sort of my politics and my 
sort of emotional and aesthetic reactions to a work are really in conflict because this is not, you know, this is not a tactic I want to encourage or that I think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Cloud Atlas is unmakeable without it, um, without sort of the flashes of recognition of these people over and over again in the different storylines. The movie has none of its emotional resonance, and I really don't right. think it could have been done with different actors. But I think it's going to be, and I, you know, I understand why it is a significant challenge for a lot of people. So it is Tom Hanks in blackface for at some point? Um, you don't have Tom Hanks in blackface. You have Halle Berry playing a white woman. You have um, Hugo Weaving and um, Jim Sturgis playing Asian in mm-hmm. a sort of futuristic Korea. Um, you know, it goes... You know, you have Hugh Grant playing a cannibal in, you know, of sort of indeterminate race. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, it's back and forth in a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you also have Hugo Weaving playing like a, you know, pasty evil nurse orderly in uh, a sort of 2012 storyline. Right. Um, but so, so this movie, I understand why you say like it's artistically necessary. But just uh, to stay on this topic for a second, sure. how did you feel about this in movies like As a, a movie. Mighty... A Mighty Heart, where uh, Angelina Jolie played a black woman, and, sure. um, or Tropic Thunder, where it's clearly meant to be satirical with Robert Downey. No, Jr. As in a this black case, man. it's solely to sort of provide continuity. The idea is that these souls are sort of moving from character to character, and you know, uh, Weaving's character in the first story in 1849 is a, you know, is a white, you know, sort of slave trader in England, um, sort of towards the end of you know, the abolition of that particular practice. The timing isn't quite right on that, but, um, you know, just in terms of historical fact. But, um, and then he is, you know, an assassin, a white assassin in the 70s story. Um, He's a sort of mythological figure in the final fall story. Um, So it's, I mean, you know, in his case, let me put it this way. The actors who are playing... The white actors who end up playing Korean play white in many more storylines than they play people of color. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, again, this is not something that I am on board with. But if you're going to cast someone to play six different roles and five of them are a white guy, I can sort of understand why you would, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of like makeup budget and practicality, cast a white Uh person in that particular role. I, you know... I'm really struggling with this and I hope that's coming across because I found some of these moments in the movie really powerful and moving even as it's a practice that I find totally obnoxious. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, short of breakfast at Tiffany's, what, what can you think of that in recent years that stuck out to you as like a practice of this obnoxious? um, uh, I mean, I think for the most part we've gotten over it as an obnoxious practice, Mm -hmm. but we're not really in a place where, you know, I mean, I there is good reason that the sort of tradition of this is obnoxious and sort of to be avoided. Um, and, you know, I mean, this gets into a lot of other issues, right? I mean, there are people who will argue that no able-bodied actor should ever play a disabled person. Um, there are really fierce arguments about whether non-transgender people should ever play transgender characters. And, you know, this takes a lot to sort out, right? Um, because there are questions, I mean, I think there are all of these thorny questions about, you know, it about sort of authenticity, 
acting as you know an act of transformation and taking on a new identity i mean i think the idea that there are certain identities or experiences that are sort of unreachable if you haven't had them is both intriguing and to a certain extent emotionally true mm-hmm. but also doesn't give enough credit to acting as a transformational process and sort of seeking out experiences that aren't your own it's i mean this is all this is all very thorny stuff and I expect to get yelled at for having some of the reactions that I'm having, but I can't help but have them, you know, it's a, it's hard. No, well, I have to see the movie first to judge for myself, but I I think I'm, I'm more likely to come down on your side of things right now. This, but that has partially to do with the fact that you are a much deeper thinker than I am. And unfortunately these things are, are not something I give too much thought to. Unless it's something around the lines of like actual classic blackface or Mickey Rooney, where I'm like, you know, what the hell, man? <laughs> but right. all, that's and almost I mean, you know. There are definitely people who argue that intentions don't matter. I kind of think they do. I mean, mm-hmm. the turning white actors Asian for the storyline that's set in what's called Neo Soul um, is really done to sort of provide a supporting cast around and bolster this incredible performance by Bae Duna, this Korean actress, um, who uh, hilariously, from a progressive blogosphere perspective, is the cousin by marriage of Ast- of Atrios, who runs the really? Eschaton blog. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there is a there is a progressive blogosphere connection there, and there's also always there's always one seven degrees of progressive yes. blogosphere. Clearly, I think we need to figure out who the Kevin Bacon version of that is. Is you know seven degrees, Matt Iglesias. seven degrees, Marcos <laughs> Melitzas. There are a lot of options there. Um, but I mean, her performance is absolutely, I think, the best thing about the movie. And mm-hmm. I say this as someone who likes Tom Hanks a good deal, but she is really something. Um, and, uh, so it's very complicated. I mean, I think people that may be low down on the list of concerns that people who have the movie end up expressing because it's a big, confusing you know sort of uneven tone poem but uh it you know it looks great the wachowskis make movies that look better and more distinctive than all but sort of a handful of working commercial american directors Mm. and uh you know it's a i would much rather see people shooting for huge ambitious stuff like this and falling short than seeing another transformers movie right absolutely so and as a movie as a whole what did you appreciate more as what you're calling like sort of a visual poem or an action film a fantasy film a drama i mean the you know the sort of futuristic sci-fi stuff is awfully neat i mean there were a couple of stories that stood out for me um ben wishaw is just remarkable as uh this character frobisher his story set in the 30s sort Mm. of between the wars um he's a young composer apprentice who ends up apprenticed to an older composer um uh, and, and played by Jim Broadbent, and um, the story is told in his letters to his lover, uh, Six Smith, who, and it's just this piercing, lovely, sort of period love story. I thought that was wonderful. I mean, I love Wishaw. I think he's tremendous. Um, that stood out for me. The story said in Neo Soul, where... Uh, Beiduna is playing um, Sonmi451. She's a replicant, a sort of artificially grown woman mm. who works as a waitress as a, at a cafe and sort of comes to consciousness and becomes part of this political movement. Again, looks great. There's a little bit of clunky writing in there, but I mean, she just is, you know, it's this story about someone who 
has essentially been locked away from the world her entire life and finally gets to encounter it mm-hmm. and, you know, has thoughts and feelings and sort of emotions and revelations. You know, seeing someone experience learning or self-respect for the first time uh, are, you know, really potent things to see on the screen. And the movie does a wonderful job with that. Um, the final sort of most futuristic post-fall story um, is probably the showcase for Tom Hanks' best work. Um, his characters and some of the other storylines are pretty cartoony, um, but he's wonderful as this, you know, man who is sort of curious about the world, trying to protect his community, and you know, takes some real risks and isn't entirely excited about what he finds mm-hmm. in his contact with sort of advanced technology. There's also a nice little performance by Susan Sarandon in that storyline. That's uh she plays sort of the uh community priestess called the Abbess. Um and she's yeah. really quite good. I'm well I'm glad to hear that it's getting a good reception from you and a bunch of other critics I'm right now Rehan. I mean it's like it's a total it's, mess but it's such a fun mess. Yeah, that, that's the general gist of what I've been reading and re- getting so far and it's nice to see that there's a good chance that the uh it, the Wachowski brothers. The Wachowskis. Will... Just be careful. The, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Wachowskis. Is it Wachowski or Wachowski? Wachowski. Okay. Are going to land on some good critical footing, finally, because... Given I mean, the they're... disaster that was Speed Racer? Yes, that and also, what was it, The Invasion, the the Daniel Craig movie that was a remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, one of like the million remakes of that movie <laughs> that came out a few years ago. Um, because as directors, even though they're co-directing this one with Tom twiker who yeah. did like run lola run which i love yeah absolutely and uh i mean even with that they're, they're back directing in this i think the last thing that i saw that got a good amount of critical acclaim and cult following since like the first matrix movie that they've been involved with heavily was v for vendetta but they, they they didn't even direct that they no. produced it they when they wrote the script uh, right right i mean they were heavily involved but it's nice to see that they're back well, and I'm really, you know, I'm curious. It's been very interesting listening to Lana um, start doing press and talking about her experiencing tra- her experience transitioning. She gave a wonderful speech to a human rights campaign dinner recently, um, and it's. I mean, it's been very interesting to hear her talk about sort of moving through identities, the sort of inadequacies of the gender binary, all of this stuff that is, you know really ties their movies together and it's uh it's interesting to sort of hear that personal touch um Mm -hmm. even if she's not talking about it sort of directly movie by movie in relation to their work uh it's you know they were always very private before she came out and you know i mean i think the sacrifice of her privacy is no small matter for her you know she sort of said at this dinner that if the sacrifice of my private civic life can give sort of one kid an image of themselves in the world then it'll have been a worthwhile sacrifice, but I think it's difficult for them. Um, And so both, you know, as someone who cares deeply about people having those kinds of role models and who cares a great deal about their movies, Mm -hmm. it's exciting both as sort of a political and art and an artistic opening up. Oh, absolutely. It's good to see them back on like ridiculously ambitious ground. I mean, like they're dissecting cloud Atlas, like the book, which is not dissecting it. They're throwing it up on the screen. And this was it like a two and a half hour movie, two hours and 46 minutes. Yeah. Like this dense, like ridiculous piece of modern literature. Yeah. They have big ideas and good for them. Those are things that are sorely lacking in movies today. So the anti-speed racer. Well, you've sold me. Hopefully you've sold listeners who haven't seen the movie yet. 
Um, moving along to uh, some Later decidedly fair. less deep television. Yes. Uh, this week, Happy Endings and Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23, two half-hour sitcoms, both premiered on ABC. Yes, and it's such a relief to have both of them back. Um, I really think Happy Endings is the funniest show on television right now. I mean... Bar none. I'd be willing to go there. I mean, just in terms of sheer joke density. Community. Community is very funny. I, I tend to find Happy Endings to be a bit more human than Community. Um, Mm. But... Yeah, I think just for sheer joke density. Maybe. it's Let's call it, I think it's probably the funniest conventional sitcom on Okay, cool. If, if cool. community you've, exists in You've spared trend. yourself of excommunication well. in this office. Thank you for that <laughs> and also, you know, uh Burning and staking <laughs> hands of community fans. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, you got to interview... Uh, the fabulous Eliza Coop, uh, who plays Jane Kirkovich Williams, uh, half of TV's best interracial couple on the show. Um, her character is married to uh, Damon Wayne's character, and uh, Coop is just a total delight. I mean, she's Absolutely. very, she's funny, sort of. She's this very sort of physically brittle, angular perfectionist on the show, mm. and she told me that. A lot of that is from playing. She said she was basically raised as a boy. She's the only girl in her family. And she played hockey and was a very stiff hockey player. Mm-hmm. And her father was always trying to tell her to get lower down to the ice and loosen up. And she would sort of stiff up. And she ended up deciding that that stiffness was very funny. Yeah. Um, and those who are listening, uh, Alyssa's interview with Liza Coop is posted on Think Progress's website. I highly recommend you read it. It's a great read. Well, thank you. And um, it's... Um, I mean, the thing about happy endings is it's when you give in the elevator pitch or you hear like a one sentence like synopsis of the show, it sounds so generic. I right. Mean, it's even, friends in Chicago. Exactly. It's friends in Chicago. Like Eliza Coop has pointed that out with like her tongue not so firmly in her cheek. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's like three guys, three girls, the friends, some of them mingle in like sexual and emotional relationships. But it sounds familiar to you, maybe. Yeah. But it's like it's a sh- Getting into it like about a year ago, I didn't think I was going to like it at all, but it's just so damn like quirky and as you said earlier, like gem packed, like second by second with these great punchy lines and cultural and pop cultural references. I, I just I'll just completely won over by it. It's so damn charming. Well, and it also is a show that looks much more like actual groups of friends than something like Friends ever did, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. in Friends, it starts out everybody's single, everyone's sort of in the same place. And a lot of the comedy of happy endings comes from the fact that the characters are at different stages in their lives. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Jane and Brad are married, um, both have pretty successful careers, you know. um, They sort of have that part of their lives figured out. Um, Jane's sister, Alex, you know, runs a successful boutique, but... Her personal life is kind of a mess. Uh, It was her decision to leave her fiancé, Dave, uh, another character on the show, at the altar that sort of kicked off the show. The Mm. logo for Happy Weddings is, you know, someone face down in a wedding cake. (laughs) Um, So Alex is a little bit of a personal mess. She and Dave decide to start dating again. He's a chef who runs a food food truck with the fabulous name of Stake Me Home Tonight. And how there isn't, like, an actual Ah. Stake Me Home Tonight makes me very sad. Well, we got to check out... 
Maybe somewhere in Pennsylvania. Right. We'll... Um, their friend Penny uh, is the sort of token single gal. Instead of having like everybody be mm. single and wackily dating, she's the person who kind of has dating adventures. And then unlike uh, unlike Friends, which had gay characters sort of on the side, like Ross's ex-wife, you've got Max, played by Adam Pally, who is a single and sort of like slobby gay guy who doesn't really fit into any of the sort of established comedic gay stereotypes. Right. And I think having the characters in different places creates a lot of interesting comedic tension mm-hmm. on the show, whether it's Jane sort of worrying about Alex, um, you know, Dave and Max living together, even though they're sort of in different places. Um, you know, the way the characters sort of rub up against each other and reconcile themselves to each other is a lot of what makes the show funny and int- emotionally interesting to me. Oh, absolutely. I love that with when they're playing against stereotype and being it, it doesn't feel forced yeah. like they're trying to challenge anything it's just refreshing how unforced it is whether it's like a gay guy who's um not being yeah you know who i, I don't want to put it this way but ass uh, acting like sloppy d- disheveled and um hypermasculine at yeah. times which again i Obviously, not saying gay men don't act like right, men, but, but we don't you know see, what I... we don't see gay men like this who we know exist in the world on television exactly. presented as real people. Right, and the uh, when there's the iteration couple with Eliza Coop's character and uh, which Wayne's brother is it? I am Damon Wayne's Junior. Junior, I always Junior. I always miss the Junior. Yeah, if she was married to one of the original Wayne's brothers, there would be some <laughs> generational ish. Um, yeah, it's just. Again, you you don't get the idea that anybody's stereotypically playing into, like, I don't know. It just seems completely normal. Well, the show feels, to me, Happy Endings feels confident enough not to need to lean on tropes as a crutch. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the, its characters are just very clearly developed people. They have their comedic lanes. And, you know, like, Jane and Brad are total freaks, which is super entertaining. Or, like... You know, Max always has wacky ideas and is kind of selfish or Alex gets caught up in something flighty and absurd. Um, And so, you know, because the personalities of the characters are so strong, they don't need to be recognizable types in the same way. And that feels very liberating, I think, for the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for rescuing me there. That everything Alyssa just said, that's what I meant. Ignore all my stuttering (laughs) about happy endings. And... We also uh, have Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23, which I will always call call Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23 instead of second. Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23 <laughs> because uh, I don't know anyone who abbreviates bitch to be except like church lady somewhere, bless their hearts. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not my favorite word in the world, but, you know, it is what it is. Let's not try and cutesy it up. Um, mm. And this is a show that just looks so weird and great to me. Um uh Dreama Walker who I think is a fantastic young actress if you are out there and haven't seen Compliance do yourself a favor it's one of the most sort of impressive and morally serious dramas you'll see all year but here she plays June um a sort of naive young woman who moves to New York City for a job in finance that disappears as soon as she gets there due to the recession loses her fiance who turns out to have been a total dog and ends up living with the hyper manipulative slightly insane Chloe um who uh, is played with a lot of aplomb by Kristen Ritter. Um, mm-hmm. Chloe has as her best friend James Vanderbeek, which is great for Jane, um, 
June because she was a Dawson's Creek freak growing up. And so the three of them form this like sort of demented friendly triangle at the middle of the show, um, along with uh, James's assistant, Luther Vandross Williams. <laughs> or is it Luther Vandross Wilson? One or the other. Um, and it's like, it's a super weird show, but I really like it. Yeah. I, uh, we've talked about this before, I'm pretty sure, on this podcast before of how I used to despise the show with like every fiber of my being. Like I thought it was one of the worst things I'd ever seen on TV. I thought all the politically incorrect humor did not cut at all. I thought it was super lame. I thought everybody acted terribly. I thought it was a poor attempt at trying to get like very sardonic and transgressive. Yeah, borderline dark humor onto like primetime TV yeah. in a very cute way. But I I don't know how it did, but as the first season went on, it grew on me. Like Kristen Ritter, I stopped thinking of her performances flimsy and hugely lame and instead really cute in almost a like suspiciously dirty kind of way right. to the point of it being some sort of art form. Well, I, could, I, I still can't of, put my finger on what I like so much about her performance. Well, she's sort of this critique of, like, cool girls with mm-hmm. the C and the G capitalized, right? Like, <laughs> she's, like, she parties super hard. She's the subject of a comic book called Tall Slot No Panties that mostly runs in Japan and is, like, super into it and collects them. Um, as we find out in the season, she runs around with a tranquilizer gun and, like, I mean, she's a nut, right? Like, she's this Yeah, she tranks a stranger She's this like party hard nympho um, who sort of accidentally ends up fulfilling a lot of June's emotional needs. Yeah, and somehow, like every episode, is we, we as viewers are reminded at the end that she does have an emotional and moral core. Right, it's she's there. just like kind of a nut. Um, yeah, she's just a nutbag. But she's also, I mean, she's this ca- character who's like party hard, like, you know, crazy over sex stuff is for her own pleasure and amusement, right? Like, mm-hmm. she ain't doing none of this to catch a man, right? Like, what Chloe does is for Chloe's own, own selfish pleasure. And we don't get to see those kinds of awesome, entertaining, like, self-centered female characters that often. And I really enjoy her. I just think it's so bonkers. Right. She's she's the raging id on, like, half-hour sitcoms right, right she's now, a rogue so. you know yeah, i mean like, she does things for her own pleasure and with absolutely no regard for anyone else's approval yeah absolutely and i again nothing has really changed about her portrayal or her performance since the pilot episode and i have no idea why i really 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 dig it now why i hated it before i i just have zero idea i wish i could elaborate for our listeners so it could seem like i have deeper thought on this but I have it's in, it's inexplicable, which I think is my endorsement of the show. It will inexplicably, like like, cudgel you into submission <laughs> with its unfortunate, filthy jokes. Yeah, it's and, also it's also very smart about pop culture, right? I mean, yeah. the first episode this season, you know, June gets really into the idea of a Dawson's Creek reunion because everything in her life is doing really poorly. You know, she mm. puts out, you know, I lost the job I came to New York for. Uh, I broke up with my fiance, and I think my breasts are shrunk a, cr- a cup size because of the sadness. Like, <laughs> I mean, like that. Just, you know, it gets at all this weird stuff about women's relationships to their bodies, um, but also to like you know, sort of our projections and obsessions with pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's just. I mean, if Tina Fey and Thirty Rock have kind of let women get in touch with like our inner slobs or 
you know, our inner like girls, lady slacker stuff or whatever. I feel like Chloe and June and don't trust the bitch kind of let us, you know, get in touch with the sides of ourselves that are like selfish and aren't good and aren't well behaved. And I, you know, I enjoy a show that to me really feels like it's doing that for women and not to like make Chloe sexy for men. Like, you know, the character Mm. actually dresses in like a sort of weird off putting way. She has strange bangs. Like, you know, there's like, there's something about her that is definitely a little off um, in a way that makes her less intimidating. Like she's nuts, but she's not scary. Right. Definitely. And her companion, James Vanderpeek as James Vanderbeek. I I just want to say something quickly about the one time, like Dawson's Creek, like wonder boy. Um, but did you watch Dawson's Creek when you yeah. were Yeah. I, I watched, like, maybe one and three quarters of an episode. Couldn't stand it. Couldn't get into it. But I did feel, since I believe it came out in 2002, uh, the adaptation of Brett Easton Ellis's uh, The Rules of Attraction. Yeah. Uh, directed by Roger Avery. Um, James Vanderbeek stars in that as, I forget the main character's name. He's but like he's, a psycho frat boy, right? No, he's not even a frat. Oh. He's just psycho. Um, he's... Patrick Bateman's brother and Patrick Bateman as in American Psycho, yeah. Christian Bale. Uh, but it's a completely different universe. He's at this like like filth-drenched liberal arts college. Yeah. And I it I really thought his performance in that was riveting. And when I saw that, I was like, geez, this guy proved me wrong. I hate him in Dawson's Creek. I'm so glad it's off the air so he can get into roles that suit him in Hollywood. And it never happened after the Rules of Attraction. I think that has something to do with very few people liked the movie yeah. as much as I did. And it's funny and all, not all too expected to see him kind of revitalizing his career as a lot of people have these days as just playing themselves in a sitcom. Well, I, but I, is... think, I think he's one of a number of actors who have taken very square aim at their own self-images. I mean, someone like James Marsden, who, you know, when I was a teenager was like just this incredible pretty boy actor, right? What was he in again when we were teenagers? Um, I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, you know, he was, he's like Cyclops in the X, the X-Men movies. He was in some mm. horror stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, he was sort of your quintessential, like, dumb, pretty, expressionless actor. And then just clearly made a decision at some point to start playing super demented. Um, so he's, you know, Corny Collins in Hairspray, where he's, like, sort of manically mm-hmm. excited about a teen dance competition. Yeah. Um, he gets stoned and spends most of the movie naked in the remake of... Um, uh, death at a funeral mm-hmm. um, and then on 30 Rock he's playing you know Chris Liz Lemon's like slacker hot dog truck running boyfriend mm-hmm. and has just been like you know you know has gone for the dementedness of these roles in a way that is just very clearly determined to take an axe to his prior reputation mm-hmm. and I think Vanderbeek you know is doing that by playing himself right I mean and, you know, he did this in Kesha's, one of Kesha's videos. He's sort of... For uh, Blow. Yes, yeah. exactly. Love that music video. Right. And so I'm hoping that by being super self-aware and kind of taking a hatchet to his reputation, that'll be the thing that lets him really sort of start over. Because he's super fun, you know? Yeah. I mean, watching him, like, track down former child stars in the supermarket and, like, beg them to do a remake with uh, him is hilarious. First time I've seen Frankie Muniz anything since... God knows when. Malcolm in the Middle. I mean, since uh, that gangster movie he was in, when he was right? Or like having in. Mark Paul Gossler do like a fame intervention with him. That stuff is funny. Yeah, you know. And I'm, um, I'm rooting for the guy. We'll have to see what happens. Same. Let's see if we can get him. Um, I don't know an Emmy for 
being on a miniseries on HBO in the next seven years or so. Seven-year plan deal. for James Vanderbeek. We can take the wonder twin powers of Think Progress and Mother Jones <laughs> and devote them to the James <laughs> Vanderbeek restoration. Well, Lissa, I think we got to get going, but uh, it's been a pleasure as always, and can't wait to see you um, next week next for Lincoln. Week. Yeah, oh, we're seeing Lincoln mm-hmm. on Monday, um, and hopefully we'll also be able to talk about flight. Yes. The upcoming Denzel Washington movie when he flies a plane upside down drunk. Yes. I, I hear that's the entire movie. It's just like two hours and ten minutes of that. <laughs> It'll be a fantastic movie. Can't we, wait to see it we tonight. We will see. Um, until next time, thanks so much, folks. See ya.